Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, rural broadband gets a major funding boost. A national rail strike was averted. The Wildcat Sanctuary in Sandstone is home to four lion cubs from Ukraine. But first, Minnesota lawmakers got the latest state budget forecast this week, and Eminem's Bill Werner tells us the number is stunning. Tasha, I don't know about anybody else, but at 9.30 a.m. on Tuesday, I took off my glasses and wiped the lenses, rubbed my eyes, and stared at the computer screen two or three times to make sure that the decimal point was really where I thought it was. Yes, $17.6 billion. That's with a B. The largest projected budget surplus in Minnesota history. Not only in absolute amount, but also in relative terms. The surplus is about one-third the size of the entire state budget. And state officials said about $12 billion of it is actually in the bank. A lot of that left over from gridlock at the legislature at the end of May. Now's the time to make sure that those classrooms are funded with the things that they need to do um, to make our kids the best qualified workforce in the world. And Governor Tim Walz said now is the time to lower costs for families and update Minnesota's aging infrastructure by tapping federal dollars. Republicans will be in the minority in both chambers come January, but their message remained unchanged. Another budget surplus, the largest ever, confirms that Minnesotans are being overtaxed. Money that could be kept within Minnesotan families to help with high grocery prices and with high energy bills That money needs to go back to Minnesotans. Incoming House Republican Minority Leader Lisa Damoth from Cold Spring. Governor Walls did not mention permanent tax cuts, but he did renew his call for Walls checks, one-time tax rebates in the amount of $1,000 for singles, $2,000 for families, plus... Social Security tax repeal for a large number of Minnesotans. But apparently not every Social Security recipient, says the governor. I think the only thing I can pledge you for certain around taxes is I will not be proposing a tax cut for the wealthiest Minnesotans. That's not going to happen. When pressed, the governor would not take tax increases, such as top bracket income or the gasoline tax, off the table, however. I think it's disingenuous to go into this by closing doors. The only door I closed on this is I'm not going to give a cut at those top levels. Incoming House Republican leader Damoth responded with Minnesota's record budget surplus. I believe, my caucus believes, that tax hikes should be completely off the table. As in the last legislative session, the governor's push for Walls checks is again getting only a lukewarm response from fellow Democrats. Incoming House Democratic Majority Leader Jamie Long saying, We certainly respect the governor's uh, proposal to us. We'll certainly take it back and consider it within caucus, but we don't have a decision to announce at this point. And an even more neutral response from incoming Senate Democratic Majority Leader Carrie Deedzik. He can propose his budget and we will have a thorough conversation and probably some hearings on the issue. Walls does seem to be getting a modicum of support from Republicans, however. Incoming House Minority Leader Damoth saying, I would possibly consider one-time rebates to our filers. Um, It's a discussion that we would have as a caucus. Republicans, of course, have signaled they want much more tax relief than just rebate checks. There's also not unity among Democrats on eliminating state income tax on Social Security benefits. The governor said for a large number of Minnesotans, but... I don't know if 
if the richest Minnesotans, billionaires, need a tax cut on Social Security. Four freshman DFL senators have a different view. In a written statement, Senators Grant Hoschild of Hermantown, Heather Gustafson from Vadnais Heights, Rob Kupek from Moorhead, and Judy Seberger of Afton said about taxing Social Security benefits, quote, not only does it burden many of Minnesota's seniors, it also leads to retirees leaving the state for others where this benefit is not taxed. This is unacceptable. And an influential Greater Minnesota Democrat, North Mankato Senator Nick French, said, quote, I personally would vote yes on a full repeal of Social Security taxes. Those views line up with Republicans' longstanding position. Ending that tax on Social Security across the board is what we need to do. That's what we talked about on the campaign trail. Incoming House GOP Minority Leader Lisa Damoth. It took about half a second after the big budget surplus was announced for interest groups to start lining up for their piece of that $17.6 billion. Coalition of Greater Minnesota Cities renewing its call for an increase in state aid to local governments. Bradley Peterson. With uh, the surpluses as big as it is, there is absolutely no reason. Uh, that the states can't make uh, these kind of investments to keep uh, local communities strong. Governor Walls said increased local government aid will be in his budget proposal. The local property tax issue, again, that is a result on when you're seeing these levy increases, that is a direct result of us not doing the deal in May. Minnesota Chamber of Commerce said the massive surplus is an opportunity to update the state's tax code to make Minnesota more attractive to business. Chamber President Doug Loon says Minnesota income taxes are sixth highest in the country affecting many small business owners and corporate taxes. We're number two in the country, second only to New Jersey. As I understand it, New Jersey's corporate rate turns off in 2024, where if we don't do anything on that, we'll be number one in the country. And advocates want a billion dollars of the surplus to beef up wages for senior caregivers. Carrie Thurlow with the Long-Term Care Imperative says they've been sounding the alarm for years about the workforce crisis in long-term care. Seniors were turned away from long-term care 11,000 times in just the month of October. That's just in Minnesota in one month. Analysts and others are flashing the amber lights about this massive piling on for a piece of the budget surplus. Carleton College political scientist Stephen Shear says all that extra money comes with a lot of uncertainties. Inflation will eat into it. A recession would cause it to dissipate, he says. And Shear notes the projected surplus. It is historically large. It's a third of the budget, which may encourage politicians to go a bit wild with it. So there are a lot of risks involved in this really unprecedented situation. Hamlin University analyst David Schultz says, With that amount of money, I think the public reaction is going to be that there has to be some serious tax cuts. The debate, of course, will be whether or not we're talking about permanent or one time, but the pressure is going to be enormous. He's as coupled with pressure for all types of spending. We don't know where inflation is going to be. We don't know if we're going to be in a recession. Um, We also should keep in mind the fact that a lot of the state's budget surplus, too, has been from one-time federal money that has been a result of the pandemic. Whereas any tax cuts would continue year after year and possibly force the budget into a deficit if the economy goes bad. So here we go, Tasha. The 2023 legislative session begins, let's see, one, two, three weeks from Tuesday. So, Bill, the big question is, are you ready? Well, I guess it doesn't make any difference whether I or anyone else is ready. The opening gavel is going to come down at noon on January 3rd. 
I guess while the pressure is turning up on lawmakers, it's eased quite a bit for the rest of us going into the holidays. Tasha, you must be talking about the nurses' strike being averted, and you are absolutely correct. The tentative contract agreements came five days before 15,000 nurses in the Twin Cities and Duluth Superior were set to go on strike through the end of the year, possibly longer at some of the hospitals. St. Luke's in Duluth, the first to announce a deal late Monday night. Health systems with 14 other hospitals promptly followed on Tuesday morning after negotiators in marathon sessions closed a gap on wages and reached tentative agreements on staffing issues. Nurses in the Twin Cities at Alina Health, Children's Minnesota, M Health Fairview, North Memorial Health, and Health Partners Methodist Hospital will receive an 18% raise over three years. The increase will be 17% plus other bonuses at Essentia and St. Luke's in Duluth. That, of course, is subject to approval by the rank and file, and union leaders are recommending a yes vote. The Minnesota Nurses Association Union says those tentative contracts also include, as they put it, unprecedented language to address chronic understaffing in our hospitals for the first time in history. The Nurses Union says changes would vary between the different hospitals, but include measures to prevent reductions in staffing levels without consensus between nurses and management, to help protect nurses from discipline when they raise concerns about unsafe assignments, and for review of staffing levels by nurses and management if preventable problems such as nurse injuries or patient falls increase more than a certain amount. Twin Cities Hospitals Group spokesman Paul Omat said, quote, The new tentative agreement shows that when we work together, we can develop staffing language that meets the unique needs of our hospitals, our nurses, and most importantly, our patients. And Tasha, nurses have already started voting on those tentative contracts. Results will be announced next Wednesday. Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters right after this. There are so many social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. They save lives. It's MatchingDonors.com, linking organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant. Most of them are waiting for kidneys. If you've considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. Did you know that birthday parties help build confidence in kids? Yeah. Did you know that giving kids less sugar before bedtime helps them sleep better? Oh, totally. Did you know that friendly kids have more friends? Everybody knows that. Hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? I didn't know that. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. Rural broadband projects across Minnesota are set to receive nearly $100 million as the state pushes to bring high-speed internet to the remaining communities that don't have access. Deed Commissioner Steve Grove. Minnesota is announcing the single largest investment in our state's history for broadband internet. We are issuing over a hundred, almost $100 million going out to 61 projects in 48 counties in every corner of our state to provide high-speed broadband internet access that we estimate will help 33,000 homes or businesses get online who are not online today. It's a, a stunningly large amount of money and a huge scope of influence with these dollars. We're grateful to the legislature 
to for putting this forward and we're today excited to announce these award winners it is really a moment for us to lean forward in this space to make sure everyone has really the plumbing of the 21st century in their homes and businesses. We wanted to give a little bit of a perspective here on just what the challenge is in Minnesota as it relates to broadband. Obviously, we're on a broadband connection right now. We all understand the importance of this resource uh, in our lives. And of course, of course, COVID just highlighted that for so many more people who are now working from home or finding other ways to access services. We estimate that this year between 240,000 and 291,000 households in Minnesota lack access to high-speed broadband internet. That's a lot of people. And for every percentage we get closer to full coverage, it gets a little bit harder because it is tough to get broadband internet access to some of the more rural parts of our state. There are geographical concerns, there are commercial concerns, the, the market has to ensure that the companies can, can make this worth it for themselves. And that's where our broadband pro program really comes in. Uh, we have made this a priority in the Wallace-Lenigan administration since the beginning of the governor's time in office. He campaigned on it in his first uh, campaign for governor and certainly in his re-election as well. He believes deeply that this is a critical resource for our state and that we need to finish the job on broadband. We also were able to convene over the last year, as many of you may have seen, a Council on Economic Expansion, a group of 15 leaders from across the state's economy that spent months putting together a plan for what the next 10 years of Minnesota's economy should look like. And that council looked at a lot of different things, and they oriented their roadmap for the next 10 years for our state around five key commitments. And one of them was an infrastructure. And infrastructure, of course, is the job of government. You hear a lot about it these days because of all the federal activity there and certainly the investments in our state as well. And in that roadmap focused on infrastructure, the governor's council on economic expansion really focused a lot on broadband. They implored our state to finish the job, ensure that every house is connected. And more specifically, they spoke to some themes, I think, within broadband that we are really holding close to our, uh, our work here at DEED as we move forward. That was DEED Commissioner Steve Grove. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. The Wildcat Sanctuary in Sandstone, Minnesota, is the new home for four lion cubs from Ukraine. This week, the three females and one male cub experienced Minnesota snow. Wildcat Sanctuary founder and executive director Tammy Teese joins Eminence Brent Palm to talk about their latest rescue. First question, how did four young lion cubs from Ukraine end up in eastern Minnesota in the first place? Well, we've um, done international rescues before as a nonprofit rescue organization for big cats. And International Fund for Animal Welfare heard about these cubs in war-stricken Ukraine and wanted to reach out to us since we'd done translocation before. It can be pretty tricky from country to country, but we know that there's more than just humans that are victim uh, victims of the war in Ukraine, and these cubs happen to be victims as well and needed a permanent sanctuary. That's awesome. Uh, I'm reading they had to stop in <laughs> Poland before they yeah. ended up here in Minnesota. Please pronounce their names for me because I'm not going to try. <laughs> they were named by their Ukraine rescuers, and sadly, they were bred and destined for the pet trade. And three of them were surrendered to a facility in Odessa, and one was surrendered to one in Kiev, actually, during the shelling. And so they were named Taras is the male. Lacia is one of the females, Stefania is a female, and Prada is a female. And they are um, between four and six months of age. They're from two different litters and two different rescues. 
from what I understand and maybe some video and pictures I saw, <laughs> this week they just had their first dose of snow. Do we know where they came from in Ukraine? Is that not an area that receives snow, or we just know this is their first Minnesota <laughs> snow? We know this is their first snow ever because when they were born, it wasn't cold weather in Ukraine. And in Poland, where they were temporarily housed as a way station until they could get to sanctuary here, they were indoors. So bringing them to Minnesota, they kept a few few days indoors. So we knew that they know where they're safe in the heated building was. And so as soon as we let them out in the snow and they put the first steps in the snow, they didn't know that lions don't usually play in the snow. They uh, thought this was wonderful. They started running right away. Our caretakers even had shuttled paths for their little paws in case they didn't like the snow. And they just went off the paths and went every direction they wanted to, chasing each other, going up caves, platforms, platforms, a few face plants in the snow, making snow lions, I guess you call it. And um, they couldn't be happier. We can't do video here on the radio, but um, (laughs) I I saw some of it and it looks fun because lions are in places like, I believe, Africa and Asia. I know I've seen like Siberian tigers. You don't often think of lions and snow, right? Right. And we have actually 13 lions here at the Wildcat Sanctuary. And so we make sure that the cubs only get a certain amount of time outside so they can acclimate to the temperatures. But here at the sanctuary, they have access to heated indoor bedrooms anytime they want. They have straw in their outside caves and in their dens. But you'd be amazed at how well even African lions um, acclimate to Minnesota temperatures. And they don't seem to to mind it at all. And they get a little bit thicker coats, not as uh, fluffy as the tigers we have here. But um, they'll have no issues fitting in over the winter months. You answered my question. I was going to ask, you know, you look at a, a lab or a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, how does their fur measure up? It's shorter. So I look at it as if you looked at a horse or a cow in Minnesota winter months and how they get thicker coats. That's what the lion coats will look like where the tiger coats will get a little longer and fluffier. The lions get more dense, but not necessarily grow longer. But they were uh, today outside again playing. They'll be playing this afternoon. Um, somebody put in a piece, caretaker put in a piece of cardboard for them, hoping it would like they could dry their pads off on it. Instead, it became another huge toy. Right now, they are predators in practice, and everything's a toy, and everything's chewable, and everything's destructible. So, um And they came, when we got them in Poland, there was actually three, and then the single was uh, not with the pride, and we were able to merge them on their first day here, so they will grow up together, four lions, here at the sanctuary, for for a home for life, as one pride. Do the other nine socialize, or how do we do that? We have um, a lot of lions that live in pairs, but this will be our largest pride here at the sanctuary. We don't have any plans to introduce them to older lions at this time. Um, and then we have a few geriatrics or, you know, our health compromised based on their past history before their rescue. And so some of those live alone, but because they're pride animals in the wild, we always have them then on a shared wall with another cat because they really do very well, even with cats near them, if they, even if they can't, if they're too compromised to live with another lion. Uh, you mentioned 13 lions. How many other cats, how many other animals are up there? So we are about, have 130 animals. We have so many habitats that are open. And when sadly we have natural attrition because we do take in a geriatric population at any given time, 50% of our population is over 15 years old. You know, we're pretty full to capacity right now, but things change all the time. So with 130 big cats, that's everything from 
lions, tigers, we have leopards here, we have cougars, smaller African cats like African circles and caracals, quite a few bobcats and lynx as well. I know you're not a zoo and I know the public can't come and hang out with these animals. Do we have videos? Is there any way people can keep in touch and uh, continue to learn what's going on at the Wildcat Sanctuary? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So we are not open for public visitation because we've chosen to be a sanctuary that's just for the animals. But we want people to be able to see the work we do and see how they're helping us rescue these animals. So our Facebook page has live posts and videos all the time. And we're going to actually be doing a live webcam a few days a week on the Lion Cubs on our YouTube channel. So people should tune in. Well, thanks for joining us, Tammy Thies, with the Wildcat Sanctuary. Always like to learn what you folks are doing out there. What a small world that you're now home to four cubs from Ukraine. Yeah, it's amazing how small the world is. Um, It's really a small thing we could do to help what's going on in Ukraine. There are so many people on the front lines helping humans and animals, and for us to do such a small part uh, means the world to us here at the sanctuary. Awesome. Well, thanks for what you folks do. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brent. Time for a quick break. More Minnesota Matters right after this. You wanted to see me? Yes, please. Have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. (sighs) We want to hire you. You're... You're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. There was big news last week when a national rail strike was averted. That was important for many industries, including agriculture. MNN correspondent Mark Dorenkamp spoke with the president of the Minnesota Corn Growers Association, Richard Severson, a West Central Minnesota farmer, about many issues facing Minnesota corn producers, including the importance of rail transportation and averting a strike. I don't think you could uh, underestimate how important it was that the strike was averted uh, from the perspective of corn growers. You know, uh, from where I live, uh, all of the corn that reaches export markets goes west on rail. Um, But a bigger impact might even have been on the ethanol industry. Uh, Most plants don't have a lot of storage. They need to be uh, producing ethanol and putting it on rail. Um, And 70% of the ethanol produced goes into a rail car at some point in time. 30% of the DDGs move by rail. So these plants would have had to shut down... uh, if the strike had lasted more than a week or two. Um, and so from a, a, a corn farmer perspective, this was a real uh, uh, bullet dodged. And we're just thankful that uh, Congress worked together and the president signed this bill that uh, uh, kept uh, the, the, the trains running on time. You mentioned ethanol and another big development last week. The EPA released its renewable volume obligations, its proposal anyway, for 2023 and beyond. 
were you and, and the association uh, as a whole pleased with the proposal? Yeah, I, I think uh, what, the, what the proposal does is it updates and kind of catches up to what the industry's been doing uh, with the, the government uh, standard. Uh, it gets us to 15 billion gallons, which is kind of the the back uh, round level in the in the uh, renewable fuel standard, and then it increases by 250 million gallons uh, in 24 and in 25. So it's really what this does is it gives the assurance to the industry, to the ethanol producer, to the corn farmer, actually, um, that there's going to be a market for a product uh, going forward, um, and. You know, what we're seeing in Minnesota is that we can blow through the blend wall by offering uh, E15 or unleaded 88, whatever you want to call it, to the consumer. And that when we offer this fuel to the consumer that uh, they will buy it because they save money. They're, they're, they realize that they're, it's better for the environment. And then uh, we as corn farmers appreciate that it, it contributes to a market for our product. Um Senator Deb Fisher and Amy Klobuchar have introduced a, a bill uh, called the Consumer and Fuel, Fuel Retailer Choice Act that would fix this E15 glitch in the uh, Clean Air Act and enable E15 to be sold year-round uh, and nationwide. And our Tina Smith has also signed on as one of the co-sponsors in the Senate. And this is a this is a great fix. And this would open up uh, ethanol volumes beyond what the government standard is and really allow the market to work to move ethanol into the marketplace, helping both uh, corn farmers and fuel buyers and consumers. While I have you on the phone, we're talking about some national issues, policy, geopolitical, but on your farm, as you prepare for the 2023 growing season, What's it like trying to, to figure out what to do with these high input costs? And I'm sure that's a conversation you're having with other corn grower members. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic right now. Um, on our farm, uh, I locked in my fertilizer for next season um, back when uh, this year's corn crop was just pollinating. And uh, so I know kind of where I'm going to be at on, on costs. And then I can target my market prices uh, that I'm shooting for based on what my actual cost of production is going to be for this coming season. I think there's um, a lot of things up in the air, although I'm hearing good things about that maybe chemicals peaked last summer and they'll be maybe just a little bit more reasonable price than they were at the peak. Um, I haven't I haven't locked those in yet. Um, there's still a lot of concern, I think, when I talk to my peers, um, equipment, Values have just gone bananas, and and land rents, of course, are a big topic of concern too. So, uh, but those are more in our control, um, and we can work with those because uh, we're dealing with people that we know or are familiar with face to face. When we when you're dealing with uh, multinational fertilizer companies and seed companies, it's a whole. It's a lot harder to. Uh, get a hold of those numbers and, and figure out where we're supposed to be doing going. But yeah, input costs are a huge concern um, for our members and I'm sure corn farmers throughout uh, the United States. Richard, any other topics that you want to make sure we talk about today? No, uh, those are, those are the big ones. Uh, 
getting getting ethanol into the fuel supply across the country at a higher level, uh, give us a stable demand base, um, and uh, uh, make sure that our export markets uh, remain free and clear. If if we have markets, America's corn farmers, Minnesota corn, corn farmers, I can guarantee you, will be ready to produce uh, the for the market that's open to us. That's president of the Minnesota Corn Growers Association, Richard Severson, and MNN's Mark Dornkamp. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station. Same time, same place. Have a great week.